And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike. And for those of you watching us live, you can tell I am the only one here. Ricky is not feeling good, and he had to go to work not feeling good. And so he is just taking the night off, getting some rest, being rejuvenated, taking the time to let God heal his body the way God has intended our bodies to be healed. And so he hopefully will be back next week. But in this episode, as you may have already saw on Facebook and maybe YouTube, that we are going to finish the chapter in Proverbs, chapter 18 in Proverbs, tonight and to think about really kind of if i could summarize it all kind of looking through and thinking about it is wisdom in our language and relationships i think is kind of the best way to think about these proverbs there's kind of this theme that is woven through, and hopefully I will allude to it and make mention of it as we talk about the, the all of these verses, verses 13 through 24, and to think about the importance of our words and our relationships. And we'll be covering, I mean, we'll be going into judicial be evangelism as I've been thinking through this. There's some serious notes in this, and it's going to be maybe a roller coaster ride emotionally, but good to think about. That's why I mean, just in preaching and in reading and taking your time to go systematically through books and study them and understanding them, the wisdom there is that you will cover the same topics over and over, but at the same time, those topics will be nuanced a little bit. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about words already multiple times within the Proverbs, but we're going to look at them again. We're going to think about them in a different way. We're going to kind of move it and to kind of, I guess in one way, change the perspective of the diamond we're looking at. And this is the same here in Proverbs chapter 18, verses 13 through 24. And we're going to start off with the ESV chapters 13 or verses 13 and 14. And the ESV reads, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. And 15, also, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and an ear of the wise seeks wisdom. When we think about these verses, and especially within the context of verse, coming off of verse 12, that before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor, it moves into this idea of, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So the idea to give an answer is to 
have an opinion. There's a question that's given to you. And so you give your opinion. You give an answer to the question. But we see here in the language, if one gives an answer before he hears. This seems kind of weird. Maybe we can kind of think of someone's answering a question before he knows the question, before he hears it, kind of like this delay thing. Now, this is not what the verse is intending. The idea for him to hear is something of understanding. The word here is used throughout the Old Testament as not just an audible hearing something. Like you go to um, the hearing place to get your hearing check and they play all the beeps and they try to see how loud and how soft you can hear to evaluate how well your ears are working. This is not the type of hearing Solomon has in mind for us. No, Solomon is thinking about hearing as in you, you hear what's being said and you understand it. And so the idea that one gives an answer before he hears is the idea that one has an opinion before he actually understands everything. And I mean, we joke about this today. You know, everyone's a, you know, an aerospace engineer major with the Artemis rocket and what's going wrong. And everyone is an expert in global relations or this or that, whatever the controversy du jour is. And what I think we see here is to give us to stop and think about our opinions. Do we answer before we understand? Do we host a podcast before we know what we're talking about? Kind of to, to, to pin it into just what Ricky and I do here on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. Are we... Are we having or knowing our opinions before we understand? And the result is, is that it's his folly and shame. That someone who has opinions without knowledge, who has opinions without understanding, they're acting foolish and they will be shamed. How many times just in the recent years because of social media, people have to come and kind of backpedal. Oh, I didn't really mean that. Oh, I didn't realize I was ignorant of this or or whatever that may be. And and maybe some of those are legitimate and they should have done that. But I think this really causes us to think about, do I know what I'm talking about? Have I researched a pastor in the last couple of weeks has had to kind of take a temporary leave. We haven't talked about it at G220 radio. I know of it. I've heard it in the news. I haven't listened to what other people have said about it. Partly because I don't really care. He, I know he was influential. I have enjoyed some of his stuff, but it's not this earth shattering event 
and it's fresh. I don't know the details. I don't know what's happening. And so we've refrained to talk about it. We have no intention in discussing it. It may become an analogy later on if we know more about it. But for us, that's the end of it. Because we see when the high pace of news and always having opinion and always trying to figure it out and, and to be there and to, to get all the pieces together right away oftentimes leads to error. How many times have crimes, big profile crimes happen and people are bringing up whatever answer to the, the known to questions or what they think has been answered without having the actual knowledge, not actually knowing what has happened and what has transpired and what do the police know and not know and, and what are they sharing and not sharing and all to be kind of be there and in the public. I think this proverb tell, has us pump the brakes, slow down, Think about our opinions. And that we don't need to have opinion on everything. But when we have opinions, we need to know. We need to have the facts as much as we can beforehand. And be willing to keep gaining understanding and knowledge with it. So if... One gives an answer before he hears if one has an opinion before he fully understands what's going on. And it is folly and shame. And kind of reading through and studying this, here's some counter examples. This is, these are examples of people not doing this. And the first one is God when he goes to Adam in the garden. Now we could easily twist this that God didn't know what Adam did. Um, that is not the case. God clearly knows what Adam was doing, but what God does gives us an example of what we should be doing when we are in the position in which we need to gain this knowledge in order to make some, some opinions, some to make maybe a judgment of some sort. And God goes to Abraham trying to find him and asked him why he was hiding. Now God knows. God doesn't need to ask Abraham, uh, sorry, Adam, why is he hiding? God knows. But what we see in what the what the triune God is doing when he goes into the garden, when he goes and finds Adam is trying to get the information. He's not pronouncing kind of a judgment, which he could, he already knows he's omniscient. But we see here, even in that example, that God, before he gives an answer, he hears. Even though in that case, he doesn't have to. In verse 14, we move into then this idea of the man's spirit. And it, the proverb says a man's spirit will endure sickness, 
but a crushed spirit who can bear. And the verse is <clears throat> kind of, when we kind of read it, seems, okay, what does he mean? And we should see this as the first kind of part A, a man's spirit will endure sickness as a man's kind of enduring and overcoming physical ailments that we as humans overcome sicknesses, whether it's a flu or we try to overcome cancer and this drive to beat it. So a man's spirit will endure kind of sickness and diseases. We will, we will continue on. We'll overcome them. But a crushed soul, who can bear it? And so the question is, you have the, the, us overcoming these physical issues, but when it comes to the spiritual soul, a soul has been crushed, kind of this idea of it losing its life, who can bear it? And the implicit answer is, well, no one. No one can bear a soul that has been crushed. And in thinking about this verse and just in my own life and um, trainings throughout the military, especially suicide, which I think is kind of the result of a person when their soul has been crushed and they think no one's around. And in doing so, they unjustly take their own life. I do think that suicide is a sin. I do not think it's a sin that will cast someone into hell like the Roman Catholics, but it is a sin. It's an unjust killing of oneself. But the question is, how do they get there? And what can be done when they're there? Because I think the proverb rightly shows, and you see these in the stories of family members who have lost loved ones to suicide or friends is there's a point in which they cannot bear the brokenness anymore. Their souls have been crushed. The desire of life is gone. And so when we think about this, who can a crush, who can, what man can bear a crushed soul and the answer is no man. No man can bear it. So then the question is, what can be done? Charles Bridges brings this out in his commentary on Proverbs. The, the question is, if no one can bear a crushed soul, the question is, who can heal it? What can be done and this is where the gospel helps us to frame 
these kind of spiritual darkness. What the, the Puritans would say would be that dark night of the soul and the great spiritual depression and anguish. And I think this happened to believers and unbelievers. And when their their sin is ever in front of them and they're in this deep spiritual depression, who can bear it? No one can. So who can heal it? And it's the gospel. It's the, the truth that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day, according to scripture, he raised again, defeating death. Death could not hold him into the grave, and then ascended into the heaven, sitting on the right hand of the Father as our advocate and intercessory. We have someone who can heal our soul. Will it happen overnight? Will you have your best life now? No. But it changes their perspective because God loves those whom he saves. And there you are experiencing that depression. You're experiencing suicidal thoughts. This is a call for you to get help. To find a local church, a pastor who can be there with you and to listen, to hear you, and to help you. You may think no one cares about you. I know that feeling. I dealt with that in high school. But you're wrong. People do care about you. And you won't know it until it's too late. But today's the day of salvation. Today can change. You can't bear a crushed soul. But Jesus can. He died. He bore our griefs that he may save us. And impart to us new life. No man can bear a crushed soul, but Jesus can heal it. Jesus can take it. Reminded even here. My wife, come ye weary and heavy laden. Jesus is calling. He loves to rescue. So um, uh, we can over, we can endure our sicknesses, our ailments, we can push on through, but we can't bear a crushed spirit. But that's why we have a God who cares and who saves sinners. And verse 15 goes in and brings a Again, about wisdom. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So, in verse 13, we have this kind of someone who is a fool. They're not 
and one's acquiring knowledge, and we'll explain that a little bit more. They're answering before they know and understand the intelligible heart. The, the wise person acquires knowledge. So there is this understanding that even where they're at in their lives, they need to go and acquire knowledge. They need to gain understanding. They are to be continuing to grow. So people who are kind of intelligent or wise understand the continual necessary work of growing in knowledge. Now we can kind of see this in our own culture when people ask successful people, what's their secret? How do they become so successful? Some of them kind of point don't say this first, but this is what they mean. It's this, well, I read books. I keep learning. I never stop learning. This is what verse 15 is talking about, that an intelligent heart acquires knowledge. It keeps learning. Now, we can acquire knowledge about the world and creation, and these are all good things and bring praises to the God. We can study like kind of things that I do on the side in my work, with just learning more about coffee and the complexity of coffee. And it's great and it's fun. I'm always excited um, to learn it. But there's also that knowledge and to grow, but to, to specifically grow in wisdom and growth in God's word. Are we excited to go and to understand not only the simple things that we need to understand on who God is and how he is faithful and just the experiential aspects that may come about as we think about our own lives, but we are to continue to grow and to know who God is. And in that growing of knowledge, our faith is deepened. When we set our eyes on the things above us, and so the intelligent heart, he acquires, it, it gathers. But the second part of the verse is a reflection of it. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So there is this getting and going to get. There is this continual learning process of acquiring and seeking knowledge. And uh, when we think about well, well, why, like, is there, what's kind of this point of seeking knowledge? And I think part of it is when we, when you get to Romans 12 and all the great theology that comes from it about not only the sinfulness of the world and the Jews' inability to keep the covenant and seeing that we're all sinners, so our righteousness come apart from our works, and so we're saved by faith, and then because we're saved by faith, we're no longer condemned. We're to do the works of the Spirit to not gratify the flesh, as Paul would say in other books. And you get all of that, and in verse 12, or in chapter 12, there is a renewing our minds, being 
kind of this sacrifice, this idea of acquiring godly knowledge. That godly knowledge renews our mind. It changes how we think. It helps us to put to death the sins that easily entangle us, as Hebrews would say in chapter 12, and then to pursue holiness, to pursue God in His goodness and His grace. And so in verse 15, this acquiring of knowledge is not just worldly knowledge, and which will, does have its benefits, but in true and ultimate knowledge of who God is. I have a acquaintance, I guess would probably be the best term for it, who is Mormon. And one thing I appreciate of him and kind of embodied in some of the Mormon theology, and I'm not turning Mormon for all you who are concerned, is that they focus on this continual learning. Now he is, it's not only, then it's not only just learning about the Bible, but also in the spheres in which they operate. For the most part, a lot of Mormons, even in the upper echelon of the of of their church, for lack of better words, are business people who are continually in learning. And there's something to be admired about that, and I think is a right application of verse 15 that we should be working to acquire knowledge, to acquire truths from the Lord, to acquire the truths in which we can gain from God's just common grace to all people. And as they live in their in his world and they discover things and as we advance and take kind of dominion and in the outworking in which we are called to do on this earth, there is this continual knowledge that we are to grow and to continue to learn, especially in the things of God, and that we may become like God. But it's the point of the point of gaining knowledge is for the purpose of godliness, as everything else we do. Verses 16 through 19, as we move on, plays more into we could say judicial works, though not exclusively, but to, to think about even kind of this application that we've kind of laid on in verses 13 through 15. And verse 16 starts this section by saying, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Verse 18, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between peace, powerful contenders. In verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and, a, and quarreling 
is like the bars of a castle. So when you think of verse 16, and we can kind of take this in two ways, and I think are very valid applications. Kind of the more positive and uplifting, we could say, of these applications is that using kind of gifts and in this not just like a musical gift, though that may be part of it, but kind of giving away, giving something, a gift, a man's gift makes room for him. And when we think about, well, how can this apply? We could say this is kind of bad and, and there's a bribery there. And that's can be understood that way. But we could also understand that a gift that we give as Christians could be a way into someone's home for evangelism, someone's life to be able to tell them of God's truth. That the giving of a gift, kind of how the modern translators kind of see this as bribery, but that we can we can understand that giving a gift provides an opportunity. It makes room. You can kind of get in. We should see that that it's kind of crowded, but you give a gift to someone and you're moved. You have room. You may have the floor to do. And to think about how gifts can be beneficial for our cause. One thing we um, started to do when my friend Ed and I would go to the University of Virginia to do evangelism. And he still does this today. In fact, we talked about him last week and his evangelistic efforts at Virginia Christian in Richmond. And one thing we do is just to give out coffee or, or cold water. So it's just something free. They don't have to stop and talk. It's not in one sense, we're not, I guess, in one sense, trying to bribe for their time, their college students. <clears throat> and it's something that is helpful. Everyone, a bottle of water is harmless unless some guy starts yelling, you put roofies in them, and then that you got to deal with that situation. But this, just a small gift hey, we have free coffee here if you like. You know, we're here to evangelize, but they don't have to listen. But what I found out practically is that giving gifts oftentimes led to conversation. That me handing someone water and say, hey, we're passing out water, led to something else. It allowed me now the opportunity to preach the gospel. It gave me the opportunity to tell this college student about the truth of Jesus Christ. And that these small gifts, in one sense, is bribing for the time and the opportunity, 
to be able to come before men. And these gifts can also allow you to get into bigger audiences. To see, in our context, the president, or in this time, the king, and to see it. But it can also be used wrongly. And this fits kind of as we move from 16 to 17. That a man's gift in a sense of a bribe and trying to corrupt justice makes room for him. He gets to get to the king sooner. He gets to plead first. And so a man's gift in this side is, is evil. It's wrong. It's trying to pervert justice. It might bring him before the judge or the king that's going to oversee his case. We see this with King Agrippa and Paul. He's King Agrippa's waiting for Paul to give him money so he can release him. He wants a bribe to corrupt justice. <clears throat> so a man using a gift this way is sinful. We can see here how this verse now transitions from 16 to 17. Because in 17, it goes, the one who states his case first seems right. And to the other comes and examines him. And to think about just even what we've talked about and people giving opinions before they have knowledge, the one who states his case first always seems right. There's no kind of evidence seemingly to counter what he has to say. And this may be intentional, that they're hiding information, they're hiding evidence of their opinion in order that it, because they know it's troubling. But it could also be that they just don't know. They have the information they have, they state their case, and it seems right. Everyone agrees with it. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. But they only seem right until the other comes and examines him. That until there is a second party, then the, that can counter, that can push back. Does that person now seems to not be right? And this can be hard. You're talking to a friend. They are relaying to you issues that they're having. And without talking to the other side, you want to believe them. They're your friend. But here they stated their case first. They seem to write, oh, yeah, that, that looks like injustice there, you may add. I mean, this this is kind of how maybe gossip starts. I heard that this family did this to this person and just like whatever dramatic thing it is. The one who states his case always seems right. There's no evidence to counter it. But when the others come in, 
now they have to defend their position. The kind of to use our legal system when the person on the stand is questioned and they seem to do no wrong and they answer all the questions, they seem right. But it's until the cross-examination that the other attorney starts to present the other side. Whether they're the for the plaintiff or the defendant, it doesn't matter. It's the other side going and talking about them, talking to them and and cross-examining. Are they really right? I mean, they still may be right. But we should understand that they only seem to be right because there's no other evidence. And I think this is – I mean, this is helpful in evangelism. People who would say, oh, all religions are the same. They heard it. It seems to be right that all the religions are the same. But when you start picking apart what religions believe, especially when you set them apart from Christianity, which says you're saved by nothing you can do, only by the grace of God. Well, that's not quite the case anymore. All pun intended. So the one who states his case first always seems right. And until the other one comes around. And then you move. So you have kind of this idea of making room of bribery into someone making their case first until Others come and cross-examine, and then you we move to this these quarrels, and in verse 18, the idea of a lot puts an end to quarrels. Now, a lot, if you don't know, is this is how the Jewish people and back in ancient Near East would make decisions and we would probably look at it. It'd be like if I had like pulling the short stick is a, a term we would use, or if we're using like dice to try to maybe make a decision. If we lands on these numbers, we're going to do this. How that might be the disciples cast lots to who to who, what, who's going to be the new disciple to take Judas's place. And so the casting of lots was a way for, kind of the Jewish people to determine God's will. So the, the question would be put forth and how are the lots landed would be then the answer. This is what's going to happen. Another example in this is when Israel's to purge the evil amongst the camp after they got destroyed by this lesser city called AI. And we see lots are being cast out until they find the proper family. <laughs> and it comes to find out that Aiken 
is the one who sinned. And they do that by casting lots, and we see God's providence in the casting of lots leads to Achan being the one who is shown to be the sinner, and God affirms that. And so the idea of lots was a way to try to discern God's direction. And it wasn't kind of fatalistic kind of in that way, but was was seen as a way in which they could, however they, how random it may seem to us that God in his sovereignty showed and, and directed the people. So the idea that a lot puts the end of quarrels is that there would be a decision made, there is a fight, and they would cast lots to decide how this, who was maybe lying or who gets the land, and it was seen as kind of God giving his, giving the final input, um, sort of speak to it. And that the idea of this continues in the rest of verse 18 when it goes the lot that puts ends to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. So again, there is this, this strife between powerful kinder, contenders, and maybe there's just not enough knowledge to make a proper decision. And so casting lots then would have been the way to kind of resolve the issue, to pick for lack of better terms, the winners and the losers, the ones who would be on the winning side of the disagreement versus the, the losing side. And so verse 18 brings about and kind of in one sense tells us about God's sovereignty and how he works to solve issues, but that there's times in which a, the decision requires kind of other means and to think about and to use it to see what God is directing people. In verse 19, which ends this section, says a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and a quarreling is like bars of a castle. Here, a brother is not just necessarily someone of the same family, same mother and father, the familiar kind of term, but just kind of in general, someone who is close. This could be friends. In Israel's concept, the idea of brothers would be all the people of Israel as they live together. They're brothers. The disciples are brothers. We see this language used in the, the New Testament to kind of bring together here close this closeness. And a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Let's think of this imagery, a strong city, which is important in the ancient Near East. It is how you protected yourself from 
criminals, from armies. You would build strong walls around the city. A strong city, it was a walled city. And it may have two walls or three walls, whatever they thought would be necessary to keep the enemies out. Here we see this then illusion that an offended brother is more unyielding than a strong city. It's stronger. They're kind of this idea of reconciling is I guess his kind of forgetting the offense is stronger than a city's defense. You just can't, when you offend a brother, it's not just like, oh, we can be good. Everything's back to number, you know, I'm sorry. That they are, they're more unyielding. The offense is serious. It needs to be reconciled and not just kind of flippantly. So verse 19 kind of shows us the, the offense in which offending someone close has on the person. And it continues on. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. That is, again, the, the defense imagery. The bars that shut down. No one comes in. No one comes out. It is probably one of the primary defenses for the opening of the city. This could indicate even a closer um, relationship that the that you have the town and then the castle that sat on top of this on top of the hill in the center of the town with its own gates to protect the king. So this could mean that just not only is offending your brother kind of and having them just forgive you stronger than a city this quarreling and then this closer is like the bars of a castle. You just don't overcome them. In some sense, it takes time. I think if we, we think about what this means in light of the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, if you have someone, someone has something against you, you need to reconcile. You need to go and to, to smooth it over. You need to to make restitution to that relationship. So I think verse 19 tells us kind of to, to think about what it means to offend a brother and why we shouldn't. That someone so close, when we offend them, the, the defenses come down and they just don't give up. This doesn't mean that this brother is allowed to become bitter. That's a sin that they must deal with. But it's right to say that the, the relationship is severed and needs to be rebuilt. Trust needs to be rebuilt. And verse 19 gives us the seriousness of what it means when we sin against our brothers. When we act careless around those who are close to us. 
And then even how much more of that reflection as you move out and to, to think about what it means. And just even in our, in our churches, if we have offended a brother, a fellow Christian, what that says and how we act. Now we should be quick to forgive and they should be quick to forgive us. But that doesn't smooth over the breach that has happened. So we should watch our words. We should be ones who now understand, okay, I don't want to offend my brother. There are bad consequences that come from that. Moving on to verses 20 and 21, again, we kind of move back to words. We, we've kind of have seen the, the knowledge and, and gaining knowledge and words. We, we kind of see in, in the last section the importance of words and gifts and how, this, how these kind of come together. In verses 20 and 21, we see the power of words. Verse 20 says, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Both of these ideas here, we see this, the idea of connecting words with being satisfied. We can understand verse 20 positively that the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He speaks and he is, he is pleased by what he has said. I think when we think about this positively, that here in verse, what would be similar to verse 21, that they are giving life the power that life are is in the power of the tongue. That is to build up to maybe another way is to bring flourishing to renew. Maybe that cast that crushed spirit to bring life to them. So the, our words have power to, bring life to bring flourishing. I think James repeats this idea when we when he talks about how we use our tongue to praise God and curse people. To, to bring life and to tear down. To bring death. So from the the fruit of man's mouth his stomach is satisfied. So when he he speaks in the the labor, the the fruit that comes from it will satisfy him. He's satisfied by the yields of his of his lips. That is what he speaks. He will eat and return. So if he speaks life, he uses the power of the tongue to speak life, to be encouraging, to bring about flourishing, not only to those around him, but in the spheres in which he influences, has influences, he will 
be satisfied with the good fruit that it brings about. But if we speak wickedly, because it's out of the abundance of our hearts that we speak, as Jesus would tell us, if we speak wickedly, we will be satisfied with the wickedness we reap from our words. When we curse people and tear them down, that we take that crushed soul that needs the words of God to encourage them and to smash them even more, break them down even more. We curse them. And so those who love to use their power for good or for ill will love the fruit that they get from it. That is, those who want flourishing and sees flourishing is satisfied with people flourishing. But if we use our words to tear down, to curse, to bring about evil on people, we will love to see the evil fall upon them. How we use our words are important. We, we know this. This is something we have seen throughout Proverbs. We know the power of our words. A soft answer turns away wrath. Just, just think about the power there. Someone who is angry, who is coming at you, but you speak a soft answer turns their wrath away in general. It, it disarms them. In, in this case, we can kind of see how the, the power of the tongue in speaking a soft answer diffuses and brings life into the situation. And the opposite would bring further death, further chaos, further destruction. This is the kind of importance of how we use our words. This isn't the prosperity gospel speaking things in existence and these good things. And if you have enough faith and you, you say enough things that you can bring about this good favor in your life. This is not what it is. This is much better. This is using your words to bring life to not only the people around you, to yourself, to speak out of the abundance of your heart, to see others enjoy God's creation as they intended to enjoy it. Our words have the power to destroy further the crushed soul or to bring about restoration in the truth. We see this in the promise of Abraham when God says, those whom bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. They will receive the fruit of their speech. Verses 22 through 24 moves us as our time quickly runs out. It moves us into 
thinking about our relationships, who we, how and who we interact with. And in verse 22 through 24, we read, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And all the men will say amen to that. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In verse 22, we see here that a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. We know this to be true even in the sinful world because God gave Adam a wife, a helpmeet, for him to, to help him have dominion and rule over the creation that God has given him to rule, given man as Adam as our representative to rule. So when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. God gives men wives because God is good. And God gives good gifts. And we, you know, in a sinful world, need this type of advice. That as men, we need to be finding women who are, who will be good wives. Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians talking about and seeing this idea of an unequally yoked family where there's a believer and an unbeliever. And this, this division and the, the trouble it causes because you have one who is trying to set their minds on the things above and the one who has set their minds on the things of earth. And and they're they're not always together. And for us to think about it, I mean, I guess not necessarily something I have to worry about in my own life. I have found a good wife. God has blessed me with a wonderful wife. And who listens to me blabber on for an hour. I mean who would want to listen to me? Just kidding. It was a joke. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. God has given men wives because they need wives. Men need the gentle touch of a woman to help raise their kids so they're not all barbarians. Let's face it. Not very good at being um can't think of the word right now, but not good at it. And to, to see that finding a good wife also leads to obtaining favor from the Lord. So we got 
got to watch out my jokes talking about Catherine Miller's favorite person right now. So I'll quit quit on the jokes there. But we see here that what we already know from Genesis, that marriage is a good thing. Marriage done rightly when the man and a woman come together to become one to serve the Lord, to to enjoy an intimacy that is only comparable to the intimacy in which we can experience with God. And he's given us that example in a husband and a wife. And that God honors that. We see examples of this. You can think of Isaac and Rebecca, the the servant of Abraham going to back to his homeland to get a wife for his son. And the servant praying for the wife of God's choosing for him. And we should see and honor, kind of speaking to men, our wives, for they are a blessing from God. And we don't even have to go to Proverbs 31 to see that. Verses 20, Proverbs 18, 22 helps us to better understand that. And in return, we can instill these into our kids to have them to, to show them what a godly marriage looks like and giving them the tools necessary for them to find a good spouse. Because when the the husband-wife relationship is strong and good, the household is good. The household is strong. And that way we see the favor of God. They're not dealing with the the struggles. There will be struggles, but there's not this added destruction because of sin. There will be sin. But God has given us the way for us to come together and to grow together in holiness, to become a bond of two and to pursue and continue to overcome, as we saw earlier in the chapter, to overcome those sicknesses, the diseases, the the affirmities that happen to us physically. And this continues on in this relationship in that you have a husband and a wife and we now see and can learn from the poor that the poor uses entreaties. But the rich answer roughly. Here we see that the, the poor, and they, when they need something, they have to come kind of as a beggar. They use entreaties to try to gain. They have to come in a certain way to 
receive. There is this kind of a giving up, a a way to act in, in kind of a relevant and reverence or humbly, maybe a better word for it. But the contrary is the rich answer roughly. We've read other ways, and the commentators were were commenting about this, about how the rich use their riches as city walls to protect them. And that they think gives them some sort of power. This is kind of the answer roughly. They think they can talk down to the poor because they have their riches. But the poor has to come humbly. And I think this helps us to think about how we can come to the Lord. If we are poor in spirit, we come to the Lord to find grace. But if we think we're good enough, we're rich enough in good works, we don't need that God stuff. We don't, we don't need salvation. And so we can see here that in this relationship between the poor and the rich, it gives us a framework in which we can understand our own sinfulness and our own pride. And to, to think about what it means to how we are to then treat others. The rich have a choice. The rich doesn't have to choose to answer roughly. They do because of their pride. They do because they're trying to defend what they have. They can just throw them off, the poor. But it helps us, this imagery helps us to think about, well, is that how we should be treating the poor? We've read earlier that those who honor the poor honor God. The rich here are not honoring. They're acting foolishly. Their words, in one sense, as we saw earlier, they're they're using their words to the power of death to destroy the poor and answering roughly. But the poor are using their words to bring life, maybe for themselves, to their family. And so again, how we speak matters. It's a reflection of who we are and who our allegiance is with. And finally, here in verse 24, a man of many companions companions come may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this verse just helps us to understand the importance of having a friend, a close friend. I was thinking about this verse and kind of the first thing that came to my mind is how many friends we have on Facebook, how many friends that or how many people we claim to have friends. And I'm kind of guarded on who I allow to be friends with me on Facebook. And I say I have 424 friends. That's how many friends I have on Facebook. And that's not to boast. That's actually not a lot compared to other people. Um, 
But in the age of social media, we have a lot of friends. But what this verse is telling us is that we can have a lot of friends, these companions, but they may come to ruined. That is, when adversity comes, when strife comes, where are his companions? Where have they gone? They're nowhere to be seen. If you are struggling, where are all your Facebook friends when you need them? They're not around you. But, always an important word, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There are friends that know you and will stick beside you. That's what a brother does. A brother, you have the brand of the the band of brothers. This idea of even in the services, as much as Ricky and I make fun of each other for the different service, the different military services we've served at. One thing we can say is when we're there, we're there to overcome. We overcome together. War is not just fought in the air or in the sea or in the land. It's fought in all three. We have to come together and we have to stick together. But a person who has many companions, they may think they have a lot of friends, but when difficulty comes, where are they? That's the question 21 wants us to, 20, verse 24 wants us to consider. Do we have, have we multiplied friends that will not be there? Will we multiply, have we multiplied companions that may not be there when we need them the most? Or have we invested in a friend who sticks closer than a brother? Do we have a Jonathan to us as David? Do we have someone that we can go to when we need help and know that they will be there for us? And that's an important question. That God, though we have a friend in Jesus, and we can find comfort in that friend and know that he will never leave us. But we also must remember that God gives companions to men and uses them to bring about, to bring people help in times of need, to strengthen them when they are down. Yes, we find courage in the Lord. Yes, we go to the Lord with anxieties, but the Lord has given us a community, the church, to help bear our burdens and maybe some of those in the church and hopefully in your local church can be there too to help you 
in times of need, to be there when you need them, when your soul seems to be crushed. Do you have a friend that you can go to? And that's important. God, we're in America, we are very individualistic, and that impacts everything we do. It impacts even me. Do we need to recognize that, that this pushes back on our individualism and tells us that we need others? A man needs a good wife. And a man needs a friend. And these are good gifts from God when they direct us towards godly worship. And this is important, especially in a culture that, in one sense, is close together on social media and far apart in the physical world. We need friends. We need good friends, godly friends, friends that direct our hearts to the Lord. So if we ever find ourselves, as the Puritans say, in a dark night of the soul, and spiritual oppression is crushing us, that we can not only call to the Lord, but use friends God has given to us to speak power, to speak light in our circumstances, to, in one sense, to push against their soul who believes maybe one story, who reads it in one way, so that we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which is our chief end. So that has been G220 Radio's radio, episode number 546. Get those numbers right. And thank you for listening. You can, if you haven't already, subscribe to our channel. We come here every Tuesday night, hopefully, Lord willing, at 9 p.m. Eastern to talk about what we want to talk about, to have real conversation with real people about theology and evangelism and exploring the depths of it so that we can think about these things and to pursue godliness. If you want to support us, um, you can buy us a coffee. I'll provide links um, down below, um, whether you're listening on the audio or on YouTube. And if you have a, a show suggestion, you can send it to us on Facebook. You can email us at g220radio at gmail.com. We are always looking for ideas. And we there's so many things to talk about. And sometimes you have to bring things back up again. That's what's nice about Proverbs. As, Paul, as uh, Peter tells us, it's good to be reminded. It's good. We forget. 
It's good to be reminded and to think through these things. So that is this episode of G220 Radio. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a blessed week. And join us next week, 9 p.m. Eastern, on YouTube and Facebook, and check the audio on Podbean. God bless.